Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Wherever you all may be, um, for some of you it, it already could be Sunday. For the rest of us, it's uh, Saturday, uh, regardless of whether um, in the United States we are on the East Coast, uh, Midwest, or as far away as the Pacific Coast. But I know where I'm at, being in the United States, uh, it is still Saturday. Uh, my wife and I have had a good weekend so far. Earlier today, we um, went out to um, a winery. Well, not to an actual winery, but we went about uh, pruning uh, grapes at the um, at the uh, at the winery's uh, vineyard site where uh, the grapes are grown. It was the first time we got to do that, and it was um, very well worth the experience. But it turns out that we are already uh, wine club members at this uh, winery. But uh, for those of you who enjoy wine and have never um, had the experience of uh, pruning grapevines, it, it, it is a lot of uh, work, but it is very well worth it in large part because you do gain a better appreciation for what um, for what it takes not only to uh, run a winery, but, um, but also that uh, the process for how the grapes are grown, it's, it's not like a light switch where you just turn it on and turn it off. You know, like when you turn the light switch on, you know, the light comes on. It, in the case with the winery, um, for grapes, you know, grapes grow, they, they just don't grow overnight. And these aren't the kinds of grapes that you would find at a grocery store either. But, um, har but um, harvesting these grapes, uh, putting them into bins where they would be um, transported to the facility uh, down the road, where they would be crushed and obviously turned into wine. Um, at least we know that we were uh, a part of a, a unique process. So if one were to ask me, would I do it again? Or rather, I should say, if someone asked my wife and I if we would do it again, we'd say absolutely yes. Uh, we enjoy drinking wine, but we also enjoy, well, I don't know if I'd say enjoy, we appreciate um, the, um, the amount of work that goes into um, we appreciate the, the work that um, vintners go into, have to do um, to make things um, doable for uh, customers so that customers will come back all on a regular basis and appreciate the wine that's uh, brought before them. So um, I know of people who do work at wineries and uh, it's not an easy job, but if you if you like drinking wine, that's one thing, but it's another thing to be able to be doing the actual work, regardless of whether it's pruning the grape vines or just um, tending to the vines themselves. But nonetheless, I was uh, very um, honored to have the experience of going out into the field and, um, and doing the work that uh, most of us don't realize goes on behind the scenes. Well, we are uh, discussing... Um, the next part, rather, I should say, to what we're discussing in the War of 1812 in Wisconsin, the Battle for Prairie du Chien, is going to be discussing about tension. Now, even the word tension itself is a vague term if you don't um, define it properly. But when I think of tension, I think of uh, conflict. It doesn't always have to mean one side against the other. Sometimes the tension can revolve from within a group. And if that tension is not uh, resolved in a proper manner, it can get out of check to where um, friendships are ruined. Uh, even an alliance itself can be ruined. So tension itself is one of those things that if, if it goes unnoticed and the problem doesn't get resolved in a timely manner, then the greater the problem it becomes to where, to where um, anything likely or anything that one would not expect to happen will take place to where if if left unchecked it will only lead to greater problems over time so in this uh, episode we're going to be discussing about uh, tensions at fort mckay but i also know for a fact that um, during the time that these uh, tensions are taking place at fort mckay tensions elsewhere are taking place not only not just so much along the prairie, aka Prairie du Chin, but tensions are really at an all-time high on the eastern front of this uh, war, and 
we'll discuss here um, shortly a little bit more about these uh, tensions along the East Coast because uh, it uh, it should not be it should not go um, unnoticed, um, and we should also be reminded of the fact that tension is not always confined to just one area, uh, not just uh, one area meaning a region for which a war itself is taking place, but there is tension pretty much all throughout the United States, or that that is uh, the ter the, the, not only just the states that make up the United States, but the uh, territory. The frontier territory west of uh, the Northwest Territory and what we know being the Northwest Territory. So let's be prepared to understand more about tensions at Fort McKay as well as tensions along the uh, East Coast. So our leadoff question for this uh, podcast um, segment is the following. Had the American advances up the Mississippi and Missouri rivers lead to better unity amongst Indian nations whose allegiances beforehand were uncertain. Okay, we all learned from the previous podcast about the American advances up the Mississippi and Missouri uh, rivers. They were placed into uh, two, um, two commanders. Uh, one of them was a, would go on to become a future president president of the United States being Zachary Taylor, or rather I should say Major Zachary Taylor. But as for the question, uh, did the American advances up the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, which um, were not successful, did those failed, rather I should say, did those failed American advances up those rivers lead to better unity amongst the Indian nations whose allegiances beforehand were uncertain? Uh, The answer is yes. And this proved ever so true at a battle that uh, I did not know uh, took place, and I don't believe many of you all would have would know about this battle, and that's fine. I didn't even know about that that there was an island. Um, I mean, I I should have known that there are islands up and down the Mississippi River, but they usually don't receive a whole lot of um, attention. So there was a, an island. And it still um, it still exists. A battle took place at what's called Credit Island. Credit folks like credit cards, yeah. So there is a, an island called Credit Island. It's an island on the Mississippi River, located near uh, present-day Davenport, Iowa. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Davenport, Iowa, that is located uh, right near the Ill- the Iowa Illinois line. So if that gives you any indication of where uh, Davenport is located, it's uh, not far from the uh, Quad Cities in Illinois, not far from uh, Galesburg, um, not far from uh, Galena. So if that gives you any uh, indication. So it's basically basically what, what we might think of as the, the borderline uh, where uh, Davenport, Iowa is, like right on the line between Iowa and Illinois. So Credit Island, yes, it's an island on the Mississippi River. It's where uh, British and SAC forces defeated the Americans. And it was not only, not only had they defeated the Americans, but this victory saw large scores of unallied Indians now flocking to their side. So in other words, we still got Indian tribes or Indian nations still very uncertain about um, whom they want to side with. But now they know firsthand the successes that have um, taken place in uh, turning back the um, American advances up the Mississippi and Missouri rivers and now defeating an American force at Credit Island on the Mississippi River. So, hey, if, you're, if you were one of those unallied Indian tribes up until now, you've got your... Um, You've got your wish come true. You know now who you want to be siding with. Now, interesting enough, some of you are probably wondering why Credit Island got its name. And I'll tell you this, it has nothing to do with credit cards because there was no such thing as credit cards back in colonial times and even in the start of the 19th century. However, credit the term credit itself has been around for a long time because even in colonial days, people were given... Um, credit. 
you know, not to get off track or anything, but yes, people were given credit. I don't know if, if people were given a line of credit, but they were given credit as to um, how much money would be lent to them and what was expected of them when they, with regards to needing to pay back the, um, the debtors. You know, the creditors are the ones who lend the money. The debtors are the ones whom, um, whom owe money to the creditors. So basically, Credit Island was a one-time Indian trading post outlet. So basically, people went to Credit Island as a means for um, establishing, um, what do you call it, establishing a, a trading relationship where the borrowers and the lenders basically would meet to um, exchange goods um, and so forth. What happened on uh, September 18, 1814, resulting in a huge blow to U.S. military leadership? Did, uh, by any chance, did someone pass away on the, um, on the U.S. side? Uh, I'll give you some choices. Did, uh, who passed away? Did uh, Major, did um, General Benjamin Howard pass away, or did General William Henry Harrison pass away? The answer is choice A. General Benjamin Howard um, died, and sadly, his, de his death left the American forces without a commander in charge. So the American forces are really, really in a bad place right now. By mid-September 1814, what became the biggest issue British military officials faced within the confines of Fort McKay? And we all know for whom Fort McKay is named after, uh, Lieutenant Colonel William McKay. Does anybody want to take a guess at what they truly thought, or truly think rather, I should say, became the biggest issue British military officials would face within the confines of Fort McKay? Did it have anything to do with uh, food rations, or did it have anything to do with um, muni munitions supply? The answer is choice A, food rations. By September 21st, Fort McKay itself had only two days left of adequate rations to feed people living in and around the prairie, a.k.a. Prairie du Chen. Two days left of rations, folks. We have to keep in mind we don't have grocery stores. We can't, you know, we can't call up um, Amazon Prime uh, and say, "Hey, we need uh, a buttload of groceries um, sent to our trade, sent to our fort um, between 10 a.m. and 12 p.m." We don't have that kind of technology, folks. Um, and you know, we also got to think to ourselves too: um, Does this post have enough? Um, muskets and rifles to give to not just ordinary people, but to Indians who could go out and hunt. Even the munition supply is not, um, is not high at all. So think about this, folks. If you only have two days left of um, adequate rations to feed people, this could mean a matter of life and death. Some people might live, other, other people may not. You know, that's why I'm, I have to remind myself that when you are faced with a situation where you only have a, short, a, a few days left of, um, of adequate rations to feed people, that's where, you know, we need to be reminded that even in these, in the 19th century, early 19th century, food was a scarce, was, could be, could have been seen as a scarcity. Um, yes, people did have access to food. But they didn't perhaps have the same kind of access to food like a lot of people do in today's world, if you live in a developed nation, that is. So the rations, or when I, when I say rations, folks, what does that necessarily mean? Does that mean like potatoes necessarily? Does it mean um, meat? It could be meat. But it could mean a lot of other things, too. Like, what about ingredients to make um, stuff? For example, like bread. What is an ingredient that people, that people would need to have when making bread? Flour. Isn't that an essential ration? Flour is used for a lot of, to make a lot of things. 
you know, flour is used to make cakes, breads. Um, flour is used um, even in um, in um, dishes that we would have like for dinner as well. So it's not, you know, using flour is not just for one um, com food commodity. So rations or provisions like meat and flour were so scarce to where the Winnebago at Prairie du Chin, whom were so desperate for bread, took up matters in their own hands by driving oxen off Joseph Rollett's property without Joseph Rollett's consent. And, you know, we've talked about, we've talked beforehand from other podcast episodes where where the Indians were going behind certain members of the British uh, military's back and stealing provisions of certain individuals, like most notably Joseph Rollett. And Joseph Rollett is already not happy with those isolated incidents. And if I was in his shoes, I wouldn't be happy either, too, knowing that um, that people I thought whom were whom whom were truly allegiant to me, you know, I would have thought maybe would have had a little bit more common sense in realize in understanding that hey, even when times get desperate, you still don't do certain things like steal people's property or not property, but steal people's belongings off their property without any kind of uh, consent or even. Think about this. We almost have to wonder. Was there any common sense even during this time, in, in time of warfare? You have to wonder. So, you know, even in times of war and crisis, people will do things that are unbecoming. And we're already seeing this now with the Indians, certain Indian tribes just doing things that are unbecoming, not only amongst within the Indian, um, within the uh, confines of the Indian um people's network but how but also between the Indian and British networks as well so some goods luckily though there is good news to report in that some goods were provided at Prairie du Chen like gunpowder and tobacco and while gunpowder is essential that can be used for hunting tobacco yes is a is a good gift tobacco could have perhaps been used to pay off some debt Matter of fact, in the um, when the English first came to Jamestown, or in the years after they first came to Jamestown, when tobacco finally became that successful, lucrative cash crop, to, one of the things tobacco was used for was to pay off debts. So, yes, by providing some goods, that's better than none. At the same time, not not all of the uh, Indian tribes benefited from. Um, from whatever was uh, provided. In other words, some Indian tribes uh, benefited, other Indian tribes did not. Is it fair to say that we could be looking at what's called survival of the fittest here? I, I think there is a very good likelihood that it is possible to say survival of the fittest could be kicking in because, you know, when, when the chips are high, or rather the stakes are high, and you know that there is tension mounting from within, it's going to come down to whether or not you want to remain loyal, but it's also going to come down to how you wish to um, put aside your differences for the better, not only for what's going on in the present, but for the future. Because the more divided you stay, even in a time of crisis, the greater the likelihood that the partisanship will get so bad to where there, the idea of uh, unity, and this and it's, partisanship will result in I, me, myself versus us, we, ourselves. And right now, I'm seeing that there is a um, a very difficult consensus. There is not a broad consensus, rather, in terms of trying to uh, get full scale unity even in times of hardship where goods are, are scarce. So what British trading officer goes about using his connections to obtain provisions? From what I read, this guy seemed like a miracle worker of his time. In other words, he's pulled off 
something that I, I, I think is miraculous. I don't know how many, um, how many, what you call, um, how many um, amount, the exact amount of um, foods he brought back, but he brought back enough to where many of people would have been able to have um, felt better about their, um, about the, um, the overall um, level of uh, food coming in. This uh, person who, um, or rather this British trading officer who used his connections to obtain provisions was Antoine Brisbois. He arrived into Prairie du Chen with a large abundance of corn. You know, didn't the uh, Indians grow corn? Yes, they did. Uh, matter of fact, corn itself um, was an old world um, staple. Um, the English would have grown corn in England, but they, um, but coming over to America or to the New World, they had to be taught how to uh, plant the corn, uh, most notably at what we now know as uh, Jamestown, Virginia. But you know, you would think that everybody would have been relieved knowing that, okay, Antoine Brisbois went above and beyond to um, stick his neck out for those who were in desperate need of um, rations to survive. Well, I hate to say this, folks, but there were some volunteers who refused to take the corn for necessary supplies. I, I, I was completely stunned by this. If I was alive and out on the prairie during this time, I would have been more than happy to have accepted the corn. It may not have been the grandest of, of rations, or it may not have been the grandest of commodities, but it's better than having no extra commodities whatsoever. So what happened to those individuals whom refused to take the corn? Well, they were stripped of their ranks. Hey, I can't blame um, upper level um, leadership for stripping those below of their ranks. I can't blame them. Um, these men whom refused to take the corn also lost their guns. Okay, so now that means that they will no longer have a way to protect themselves from outside intruders, and they also will not have anything to use to go about hunting for food in the woods. These men whom refused to take the corn were also forbidden to provide, how should I say it, those whom lost ranks to losing their guns, those whom abided by the, um, the guidelines in terms of taking the corn for necessary supplies were forbidden to provide, to provide the volunteers whom did not take the corn with any food, including shelter. I think it's fair to say that British leadership from above has made it very clear by saying, look, you know what's at stake here. If you know of anybody who refused to take the corn, don't feel sorry for them. It was their, it's their fault. It's their red wagon. They can lie in it. And they have to learn the hard way. And yes, we don't want anybody to die, but if these people whom refused to take the corn end up dying because of, um, end up dying due to uh, a lack of, um, lack of food, if they die because they, um, if they die for unforeseen circumstances, and part of it, the reason had to do with um, not eating food, then the only people they could have blamed were themselves for not, um, for not uh, taking what was given to them. It almost kind of reminds me of uh, even when the English first came to Jamestown, shortly after they first settled there, there was um, there was a lot of um, tension. We we need to be reminded of this, folks. When the English came to Jamestown in 1607, it was not a joyride. My dad would agree with it too because he told me he told me not long ago when he was growing up he was told uh, when he was a child growing up he, and learning about Jamestown, he said that everybody, you know, journeyed across the ocean. They were all very happy about where they were going, and they were all on the same page. Historians now know that that's not the case. There were some men whom 
were uh, going over there to um, to uh, work off a um, prison sentence. We know that Captain John Smith was tied in a chain, was chained up on one of the ships the whole way over because he had been accused of um, trying to orchestrate a mutiny. So Captain Christopher Newport basically um, bailed him out by pretty much saying, "Look, you know, you are if you." Um, cause any other further mischief on this ride over, we will uh, throw you overboard. But uh, basically for John Smith, once he made it in, once they all arrived, he basically had to diffuse the uh, unnecessary tension amongst the, um, amongst the men at Jamestown. There were some who did not want to work because of their status, being high-end society. Basically he had to come up with this little saying, Thou who shall not work shall not eat. In other words, you don't want to work, you will not be given any food. I think it's fair to say that uh, this, what we're discussing now wasn't so much a question of working, it was just a question of pure ignorance. Okay, you may not have, if you didn't like corn, that's one thing, but you know what? You've got to eat to survive. And you know what? If you're not going to take the corn then yes, you're going to have to suffer the consequences. So I'm not exactly sure just how many people um, suffered the consequences, but there were enough who um, had to learn the hard way. Uh, what else was significant besides the British victory at Mackinac Island to re-securing the Western Great Lakes? How about the ability to transport a large array of essential provisions into Michilimackinac, such as flour, kegs of pork and salt, cases of guns, to bags of shot and kegs of powder, including Indian presents ranging from blankets, handkerchiefs, sewing materials, flints. You know, it's one thing to, uh, to defeat the enemy, which, the, which they did the Americans, to re-secure Mackinac Island, as well as uh, a vast array of, of uh, territory in the western Great Lakes. But in order to it's not just defeating the enemy, but how about regaining a trade route or trade routes that will um, allow for essential provisions to come into um, what we now know as Mackinac Island from, uh, say, Montreal, Canada, or, um, or elsewhere on the outskirts of Montreal, Canada, where the boat, where the uh, barges are coming uh, via waterway through the St. Lawrence um, river, and then um, making their way into what we now into uh, the Great Lakes. I don't actually. I should take it back. The St. Lawrence is not completely connected to the Great Lakes by this by that in the 19th century, but Montreal, Canada, is not far from the St. Lawrence River, so that's why I mentioned that. What was the biggest desire Indian tribes were seeking? to attack American troop forces, most notably after the success at Credit Island. The Indian desire for attack could be felt at Prairie du Chien, but also as far away as La Baie. Now, where is Robert Dixon, folks? We haven't mentioned him in a while, but where is he? Is he at Prairie du Chien? Is he at La Baie? Or is he at Michilimackinac? He's, at, he's currently at Michilimackinac. He received letters from various British officials whom described Indian behaviors as troubling based upon their activities along the prairie and not knowing how to go about providing for them. Well, you know, I mentioned earlier about how there, at one point there were only two days left of rations. So isn't it fair to say that the Indian tribes were also heavily impacted by this, that were at Prairie du Chien. Yes. So, if the Indians who are there only have two days' worth of food to rely upon, are you, as a British official, worried about what actions they could engage in that, that could be very hostile to the point where there could be a mutiny from within the prairie? Oh, absolutely. You know, just because you've won military victories, it doesn't mean that you're unified on every other front. And 
relations from within the fort that are non that are non uh, combat affairs. Those are the uh, relations that will either make or break for where relationships go in the long run. And right now, it's all very very um, uncertain. You know, the people at Labaye are the ones that are really um, suffering the most. And I'm going to ask you all a question here. Was there any military presence at Labaye? No. So why are the residents of Labaye uh, struggling? Well, it's they lack the means to, to defend themselves against um, Indian um, intrusion. And what I mean by intrusion is that is that Indians coming onto the settlers' properties and slaughtering their cattle, destroying their wheat, basically destroying all of their all of these families' essentials to survive for the upcoming season being winter. You know, when one group of people doesn't have enough provisions whereas the other fam whereas the other group being the settlers are working their tails off to ensure that their family survives for the winter only to be um, deprived by not in this case not an opposing force but by a force from within whom doesn't have the same kind of um, resources to obtain the food it doesn't make for a good uh, relationship in terms of boundaries. So, the good news is that by the time the British arrive, military enforcement goes into effect full scale, but Labaye's residents are very, very furious. Many of these people have lost a lot of um, necessary provisions, but they have lost, they, they feel as though they've lost their livelihood. So for the residents of Labaye, they have a right to be angry, and they, they are demanding to get compensated for their losses. So British Captain Andrew Bulger convened a court of inquiry on November 13, 1814. Thirty-nine men, being Labaye residents, testified where each individual listed, or rather I should say tallied their losses. You know, um, Captain Bolger was very, very uh, sympathetic with these 39 men. However, I, I believe it's fair to say Captain um, Andrew Bolger is also in a no-win situation because he is also forced to sympathize with the Indian situation as their plight was beyond control. And, you know, it is true. The residents, as well as the Indians, are both struggling to survive. And this is where survival of the fittest is truly showing its, um, its breaking point. But does anybody want to take a guess exactly at just how many Indian peoples, or Indian tribes, rather, Indian tribal peoples, I could say, how many Indian tribal peoples are under the British protect or under British protection throughout the Upper Mississippi? Is it? I'll give you three choices. Choice A is it fifteen thousand? Choice C twenty five thousand? Or choice? I mean, what I meant to say was choice B twenty five thousand or choice C twenty thousand. So the, the choices are the following, choice A, 15,000, choice B, 25,000, choice C, 20,000. The answer is choice C, 20,000. Can you believe that, folks? The British forces had 20,000 Indian peoples, tribal peoples, under their protection throughout the upper Mississippi. You know, that that's a lot of people, you know, it's one thing to ensure that people below you will be protected, but you've also now got to think about, hey, we've got to we've got to go above and beyond to ensure that these twenty thousand people are going to remain loyal to us. Meaning, we've got to provide them rations, not just ra any rations, food rations, defense rations, 
you know, for munitions purposes, gun, uh, muskets, rifles, we've got to provide them with blankets. We've got to provide them with everyday essentials that, you know, that even we and as individuals in today's time would take for granted if we weren't careful. So 20,000 people that the, that the British government, or rather the British military on the Western frontier, is having to uh, look after all in the name of um, loyalties, all in the name of alliances. And if those 20,000 Indian tribal peoples are not looked after, folks, the alliance itself that has been in effect for about 50 years in the, since, the after, since the end of the French and Indian War could fall apart at any given moment's notice. Was British commander Thomas McKay's, Thomas Anderson's reign at Fort McKay a good one? No. Um, he had men below refuse to obey orders, avoid guard duty, to getting drunk, along with rejecting food rations. Huh. These, these men who rejected the food rations probably were the ones that rejected the uh, corn uh, that was brought in from, um, from uh, what's-his-face, Antoine Brisbois. You know, we'd like to think of a, um, sometimes, uh, I've always thought that the British military was, yes, they are the strongest military in the world during this time. They were in the American Revolution, but it didn't mean that they had problems w from within their system. Uh, we should keep in mind, like, not to get off track here, but like, for example, in the American Revolution, 80% of the British army had was comprised of men of lower class status. So that means that only 20% of the British uh, military was comprised of men whom were from the upper ranks of uh, British society. So that 80% often was the, the sector of uh, British military that could uh, cause a lot of problems from within, especially getting drunk, refusing to obey the most general of basic orders, like uh, including refusal to do such duties as guard duty. Well, you know, um, British commander Thomas Anderson and other members uh, within his, um, not just within his rank, but within his inner circle, did go about uh, punishing these men um, by means of um, lashes. And in some instances, it's fair to say that some men got 50 lashes or more for their um, for their um, cowardly actions. But you know something? Despite punishing the men whom disobeyed orders with lashes to incarceration, it still wasn't enough to stop others from participating in activities dubbed mutinous, a.k.a. mutiny-like activities. So you could incarcerate people. You could, you could bring others... Um, whom did not uh, engage in um, being defiant and forced them to watch a whipping take place of a handful of men whom, whom decided to um, do the exact opposite, but it wouldn't deter others from, from making those same mistakes. So even um, the tensions are not just between the British and the Indians now, folks. The tensions lie within the British Army itself. Which uh, British official got questioned uh, by his superiors from within for acts dubbed treasonous, or rather I should say seditious? Joseph Rollett. However, the charges brought before him lacked sufficient evidence resulting in, in his acquittal. Andrew Bolger and Robert Dixon were the two most powerful officers within the British Army, but most notably along the upper Mississippi. These two men had the power to reconcile all relations. So think about that, folks. Two men have the power to reconcile the relations. Now, I did tell you earlier, and we've got some time here, so I'm going to um, make the most of it right here by uh, getting into this information next. 
Does anybody else know what is taking place in the War of 1812 between late August going into, uh, sept into uh, September? Well, let me ask you this. Is Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, safe? In other words, is it safe from any would-be attack by the enemy? Well, for starters, Washington, D.C. is a wilderness. That's how many best described uh, our nation's capital, not just going into 1814, but well before um, James Madison became president and also well before his administration, including Congress, went about declaring war against England. People, most notably of uh, well-to-do status, preferred going to Annapolis, Maryland. They preferred going to Baltimore. They preferred going to Alexandria, Georgetown. They didn't like going, staying in D.C. because there really wasn't a whole lot to do in terms of entertaining, in terms of uh, having what you call uh, social affairs amongst the well-to-do. But President Madison, his administration was very um, arrogant. I mean, I hate to say this about James Madison. I mean, James Madison... He is the father of our Constitution. Without James Madison, you don't have a Bill of Rights. James Madison studied um, republics and how past republics succeeded and why past republics failed. We do have James Madison to thank for so much when it came to um, our Constitution and how and why our Constitution, the United States Constitution, still exists today. We can have we have so much. Yes, we can thank a lot of our other forefathers who signed the Constitution for doing their part, but I do believe James Madison played a very, very vital part, probably the utmost of vital parts in assuring that our Constitution uh, prevailed. But what James Madison didn't do, he didn't truly ap appreciate the seriousness or the warnings that were given to him because he truly did not think that the British would ever be interested in wanting to attack a wilderness. Well, we have James Madison and his Secretary of War, John Armstrong, to thank for, um, for bringing about the debacle that happened, resulting in the burning of our nation's capital, the White House, and every other building that got burnt with the exception of the patent office. You know, the British, uh, when they burned Washington, the British had um, every opportunity that night to advance northward to Baltimore, which, which was about 40 to 60 miles away from Washington, D.C. Baltimore was a very, very vital hub for commerce. It still is even today. But in the early 19th century, Baltimore was vital for our nation's commerce with goods coming north and south. Many historians now know that had the, had the British advanced north to Baltimore after the burning of Washington, the United States would have completely um, fallen apart. The British had every opportunity to do this, but even amongst the British High, even amongst the most elite of the British um, generals, not just generals, but officers, they couldn't, there were some who wanted to go forward with attacking Baltimore, but there were others who said, hey, we've already got the Americans where, the, where we want them. We've annihilated their capital. We have annihilated the president's office. We have annihilated pretty much every building in D.C. The wilderness has been obliterated. Why do we need to go up northward? Because you know what? If we go northward, our men, our men are already exhausted. We, I think that our men need to rest. You know something, folks? If you've got momentum on your side, keep it on your side. The British waited three weeks after, at least three weeks after the burning of Washington to go back into Baltimore to invade Baltimore. But what did the British fail to realize? Okay? They underestimated the people of Baltimore, Maryland. Baltimore has a higher population than Washington, D.C. at this time. 
when the people of Baltimore found out about this burning, they were livid. They were angry. They were so angry that their president had turned their backs on the people of America. As a matter of fact, uh, from the book, uh, Steve Vogel's book, Through the Perilous Fight, uh, from the burning of Washington, the Star-Spangled Banner, and the Six Weeks that Saved the Nation, um, historians now know that President Madison, when he fled, that he was rejected by a handful of tavern keepers because they, they knew what had happened to Washington and to the Capitol, that they were that they were too embarrassed to let their to allow their commander in chief to stay at their uh, tavern. Someone did eventually um, let James Madison come in when he was reunited with his wife, but there were many in, in uh, Congress who wanted him impeached for his uh, conduct. But the people of Baltimore dug up uh, trenches, they built fortifications, redoubts. They did the whole nine yards to where Fort McHenry was fortified. Uh, the city itself was fortified. And, of course, the story, for those of you who were with me when we did Through the Perilous Fight, you all know that uh, Francis Scott Key did not write the Star-Spangled Banner on his own leisurely time. He was aboard a British, aboard a British ship, the HMS Tenant, seeking the release of a, of a prominent doctor named Dr. William Beans, along with some other uh, American uh, prisoners of war. But, while, but throughout the night, as the bombs were burst, as the rockets red glare and the bombs bursting in air, all throughout the harbor, Francis Scott Key worried and had every right to be worried as to what would happen after night, after night ended and came the next day. Would the American flag be, still be standing? Would I wake up to a United States of America or would I wake up to another country taking over the country I had, that I, uh, that I had known to be the United States for, for, for close to 40 years. Well, as those rockets were red glaring and the bombs bursting in air, Francis Scott Key did feel some relief knowing that, okay, there still is a fight ensuing. But come morning, they know that by the time morning approached, it was, it was cloudy. Key has his telescope and he sees a flag high in the sky, the United States flag, so proudly waving. Key himself knew that the flag st still stood, the flag was still there, that th even through the darkest of moments, the darkest hours, that America was still there, that she still so proudly waved her flag through the darkest of times, America was still there. So here we are, folks, at a uh, point in this war, a.k.a. the Forgotten War, where one front, there is tension. And the tension isn't confined there. The tension is also confined to the Eastern Front, the Eastern Front, where the biggest difference lied between a, a nation in existence, on the fringes of existence, and whether or not come the next day that nation would still be there. And gave proof through the night, through the, through the darkest of moments, through the darkest hours, our flag was still there. And thank you, Francis Scott Key, for... for for deliver for coming up with a national anthem that uh, you and you had uh, you were that you um, did for us because our flag still waves very proud even in the even in the most uh, difficult of times. So, folks, uh, we've covered a lot of ground, and just keep in mind that uh, tension itself is something that's never avoided. It can't be avoided. But tension itself is, uh, is, is unpredictable. 
it's not always confined to two um, opposing sides. It is confined. It, it also can be found amongst the amongst the um, the foe or the enemy from within its own ranks. I do firmly believe had the British advanced on Baltimore, advanced northward to Baltimore, after they burned Washington, that the United States sadly would not have would no longer have become the United States. We as a as a nation would have probably become subjects again to the British Empire. Well, when I'm back on the air again next with you all, we're going to be um, finish. We're going to be in the uh, stages now of uh, of eventually finishing this um, story. We're going to be talking about such things like news of peace to um, peace and its aftermath. But when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be talking about news of peace. You know, who who knows what peace itself will entail? Does peace mean does peace in this sense mean that both parties, the Americans and the British, will benefit from the peace so much that they will find ways to make amends and have lead to respect amongst both nations? That's what we would hope for, but peace itself isn't one of those things that just happens overnight. Peace itself comes with time. And even in, in the midst of warfare, peace alone has to take time in order for both nations to heal from their wounds. Now, thank you again, as always, for listening. I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Uh, thank you again for, for listening to the podcasts that I uh, share with you all. I'm glad to know that you all find them educational. Uh, we, I believe it's imperative that this stuff gets taught uh, because uh, for some of you, you may not have been taught this stuff in school. And by my teaching you this stuff now, maybe I'm able to make up for it um, by um, by helping you all learn more than what you had been than what you had um, been taught previously. Before I myself knew years ago when I first learned about the War of 1812, did not know anything about um, about about key battles in the um, Northwest Territory, most notably Wisconsin. The only thing I really knew about the War of 1812 at one time was the burning of Washington and the Battle of Baltimore, uh, the Battle of New Orleans. Those were the only things that I really knew, uh, as well as uh, Lake Erie and all. Well, thank you again, and uh, I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Uh, Take care for now, and uh, stay safe. God bless you all.